Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a new report sheds light on a troubling increase in white supremacist propaganda in the Midwest. More drugs are being seized across Minnesota, and the Gopher baseball season is on deck. But first... Senator Gazelka. Thank you, Mr. President. I impose the call of the Senate. The Senate is under call. The Minnesota legislature opened its 2020 legislative session this week at the state capitol in St. Paul, and MNN's Bill Werner has a recap. Well, Scott, citizens wasted no time making their voices heard on the first day of the session. What do we want? Why do we want it? Protesters outside the Senate chamber demanding that undocumented immigrants be allowed to obtain driver's licenses in Minnesota. Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka says he will not support what he terms driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. My hope is that someday they actually close the border on the federal level and that we then figure out what to do with all the people that have been here for a generation. It is a problem. I just don't want to reward illegal activity. Backers say Minnesota roads will be safer if undocumented immigrants receive driver's licenses with with the proper training. State's gun laws on Minnesota's minds as lawmakers came back to St. Paul. I have a constitutional right to own a gun, and that constitutional right has already been infringed upon many, many times, and it has to stop now. Michelle from Prior Lake, but Molly from Minneapolis with the group Moms Demand Action says universal background checks and so-called red flag laws are working to drive down gun violence. Research has shown in the states that do have these laws, there's a reduction in homicides and suicides. So we're going with what has worked in other states and been proven to reduce gun violence. House Democrats say they plan to again pass background check and red flag bills this session, but House Republican Minority Leader Kurt Dowd says... I think the first thing you need to do is look at are there guns being transferred uh, without background checks? What's the real problem and how would you solve that problem? Guns and other hot-button issues aside, the main tasks of the 2020 legislative session are a bonding bill for state public works projects and deciding what to do with the state's projected $1.3 billion budget surplus. House Democrats say use $500 million of it to beef up early childhood education programs, voluntary pre-K, and child care assistance. House Speaker Melissa Hortman. We believe that all of our children deserve a great start in their lives. We know that Minnesota has one of the worst opportunity gaps in the nation, and we know that too many families are struggling to try to find affordable child care. Senate Republicans say Minnesotans should get back part of the state's budget surplus. They're pushing to phase out Minnesota income tax on Social Security benefits. Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. We're one of only 10 or 12 states that uh, taxes Social Security income, and if we could get rid of that, acknowledging that it's a big price tag, that would be good for Minnesota. Senator Gazelka is pushing a tax cut for the rich. I don't see us moving in that direction. House Speaker Hortman. Governor Tim Walz wants what he terms a robust bonding bill for state public works projects. The state borrowing about $2 billion is his proposal, but Senate Republican Majority Leader Gazelka is talking about much less, a focused bonding bill of under $1 billion. Wastewater infrastructure across the, the state is really important. Roads and bridges for making sure we have resources there are really important. But Gazelka needs some Democratic votes to pass a bonding bill and Senate Minority Leader Susan Kent says this is an opportunity to have an ambitious bonding bill so I think the governor's bill is is a good ballpark a good goal to set to, to shoot for lawmakers will try to find that magic combination of dollars and projects that can get enough votes to pass 
And big political goings-on this week outside the state capitol. Hello, America. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. After a disappointing fifth-place finish in the Iowa caucuses, a strong third-place showing this week for Minnesota's senior senator in the New Hampshire presidential primary. Klobuchar finished behind Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, but outdistanced Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. Because of you, we are taking this campaign to Nevada. But Hamlin University analyst David Schultz sees less than smooth sailing for Klobuchar in the next two key contests, Nevada and South Carolina. Right now we're looking at Iowa and looking at New Hampshire, which are exceedingly um, white Caucasian states compared to the rest of the nation and clearly compared to Nevada and South Carolina. Right now the polls have her resonating almost not at all with people of color and very, very far down the pack in those two states. And Klobuchar's record as a prosecutor in a high-visibility Minnesota case involving an African-American defendant is now getting more scrutiny as she nudges the top tier of presidential contenders. Scott? Thank you for that recap, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before. And we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. Woo-hoo! So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The distribution of white supremacist propaganda in Minnesota was up significantly last year, up more than 160 percent, according to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League. I spoke with the ADL's David Goldenberg about this troubling trend. White supremacist propaganda distribution Um, more than doubled in 2019 uh, nationwide and across the Midwest compared to 2018. Um, And the new data that we released also revealed that 2019 was the highest year on record for white supremacist propaganda activity. Um, And in the Midwest, uh, we saw a 118% increase um, in the distribution of literature and flyers and stickers and posters from white supremacists, which is quite concerning. But in Minnesota, um, we saw a 170% increase um, in the distribution of literature from white supremacists um, with more than 50 incidents occurring just in the state. Tell me a little bit about how you track those kinds of incidents. Where do you get the information from? Absolutely. So ADL has, we, we capture the information in a number of different ways. 
Um, in many cases, we're the front line, we're the first folks, we're the first organization that people report these incidents to. Um, and so uh, somebody sees a flyer, something was dropped on their doorstep, they see a flyer posted on college campuses um, or wherever it might be, they report it to ADL and, and we work with them in responding to those incidents. Um, we also track it in media reports. Um, and then also ADL Center on Extremism um, tracks and monitors and exposes uh, extremists, including white supremacists, um, who are active online. Um, and in those cases, sometimes they're bragging about it. They've taken pictures about it and posted it on uh, some of their chat networks, which we then find out about, too. And from the data, it also shows that there were 41 anti-Semitic incidents in Minnesota last year. Where does that rank according to, you know, compared to the previous year? So as far as the number of anti-Semitic incidents go in uh, Minnesota, it was right around the same um, that we had seen in the previous year. Um, but what we're st- but what we saw across the across the Midwest was a 110 percent increase in anti-Semitic incidents um, across the Midwest. In Minnesota, it was a slight increase, um, but right generally right around where we saw it in 2018. Um, but you know, one of the things also that I wanted to highlight for you um, is that you know where we're seeing some of these white supremacist propaganda activities really occurring are on college campuses. Um, you know, we saw nearly uh, approximately 630 incidents were reported on college and university campuses uh, in 2019, which was nearly double um, from what we had seen in 2018. Um, and that's a, it's a big concern. Um, now, the flip side of it, too, is that 90% of campuses were targeted pretty much only once or twice which suggests that despite their increasing efforts, white supremacists seem to have failed to gain a sustained foothold on campus. Um, But it doesn't mean that they're stopping um, from trying, and in fact, they're trying even more. And what do we, as much as we can possibly attribute this to something, what are some of the contributing factors that, that result in this huge uptick? Well, certainly when we look at technology and the availability of hate symbols and, and the ease that you have today in accessing some of these extremist views, that is certainly, um, uh, certainly painting the way uh, folks are getting their information. You also have the sort of rhetoric um, and discourse in society today, which is quite concerning. Um, and then the last piece about it is that you know, literature distribution, distributing propaganda, um, is a way to do it anonymously. Um, and white supremacists have turned to that, um, and they're using propaganda literature really to spread their hateful messages while simultaneously remaining anonymous and avoiding public backlash. And so they're able to do it um, and still be able to incite fear um, or the type of emotional reaction that they're seeking, um, but do so anonymously. David, tell me a little bit about what we do with this information and how we use it uh, or can use it to try to reverse this trend moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that as you're starting to see as different groups are, are feeling increasingly empowered to spread this type of hate um, and do it this way, um, 
leaders and elected officials need to understand what's occurring. Um, university leaders need to understand what's occurring on their college campus and declaring that their campuses are no places for hate um, and that they're going to be speaking out and be willing to speak out about it. Um, the public needs to understand sort of what do they do and how they can respond to this type of hateful messaging um, that's coming from hateful individuals um, and knowing how to report it and how to respond to it and how to unify against it. Um, and those are some areas that we really think um, uh, in Minnesota, throughout the Midwest and across the country, um, that communities and leaders need to come together to stand up and say, um, we're not going to allow this type of hate to become normalized in America. And if anybody here in Minnesota or, or anywhere who happens to hear this sees incidents of this kind of propaganda, what do you recommend that they do? Well, the first thing they can do is they can report it to ADL by going to ADL.org. Um, and right on our homepage, you can report an incident. Um, and then we would also encourage them to report it to local law enforcement. Uh, make sure the law enforcement is aware. We part, ADL partners with law enforcement around the country to help ensure that law enforcement understands when a flyer pops up. Um, who's you know what group was it an individual was it a particular group that could be behind it um, and helping them understand sort of what type of presence could be occurring in their building up in their own communities um, so for starters report it to ADL at ADL.org um, right on our homepage and then also you know certainly report it to local law enforcement and we would also encourage people to take it down. Thank you to my guest, David Goldenberg, with the Anti-Defamation League. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. State officials report drug seizures in the state are on the rise for the 12th straight year. Tasha Radel has the story. That's right, Scott. Drug seizures for Minnesota's violent crime enforcement teams increased in several major drug categories in 2019. Joining me today is statewide gang and drug coordinator Brian Marquardt. Welcome, Brian. So let's dive right into the data. Should we be alarmed? Tasha, we are very concerned at seeing the increases in, in a, a number of categories for our drugs. Uh, a 647% or 642 increase in methamphetamine in 2019 from 2018. That is extremely concerning, uh, being that most of the methamphetamine we're seizing is a very potent, very high-quality uh, methamphetamine. Are we seeing it um, relatively both in the metro areas along with greater Minnesota? Absolutely. There is no area in Minnesota that has uh, not been touched by these methamphetamine increases. And then when we look to other uh, different drugs, uh, perhaps prescriptions, opioids, heroin, marijuana, anything there that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, real honestly, uh, Tasha, there's uh, very concerning numbers in, in, in most of our categories. Uh, heroin almost doubled uh, from 2018. Uh, the other very concerning part about the heroin we're seizing is much of it is uh, laced with fentanyl. Uh, as we know that our overdose deaths in Minnesota and across the country have gone down uh, in, in 2018. A category that is increasing is the uh, fentanyl overdose cases. And then, you know, obviously uh, no drugs is, you know, is what we aim for. But I did think I saw that the number of cocaine seizures are going down. Is that true? No, our cocaine seizures have 
dramatically increased from 2015. Uh, we had just short of 13 pounds of methane or cocaine seized, and last year we had 106 pounds. Over the past 24 months or so, I've been seeing uh, an alarming trend: uh, cocaine coming from uh, Central and South America. They are not uh, stopping a lot of it uh, down there now. They have ramped up production, uh, which across the country we have seen uh, increases in cocaine coming into our communities and into the state of Minnesota. Wow, boy, I sure read that statistic wrong. Oh, that's pretty uh, pretty alarming. And, you know, wanting to go back a little bit, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, such a high increase in methamphetamine. And I know back pretty much in my early days of reporting that we saw a lot of, I guess, mobile meth labs. Has that changed over the years? Yeah, absolutely. The The dynamic has uh, changed dramatically. Uh, the height of our meth problem was in 2003. Uh, the state saw 410 methamphetamine laboratories at that time, um, causing uh, uh, many throughout the state, uh, because of the, the hazards of all of the chemicals, plus all of the addiction that it was causing, uh, we had lots of issues. For the last several years, we have seen a, a massive decline uh, in the number of methamphetamine labs we've discovered. The last two years, we've had only four each year. So is it fair to say that the, the meth is coming in then from, I, I mean, I don't want to assume, but Mexico? Yeah, al- almost exclusively. 99.9% of our methamphetamine that comes into the state of Minnesota is Mexican drug trafficking organizations bringing up very large quantities a few years ago, five or ten pounds of methamphetamine would have been a major seizure. Uh, it would have gotten, uh, you know, media attention. It would have been, probably been prosecuted in federal court. Uh, and now we are seeing seizures of 50, 100, upwards of 200 pounds of methamphetamine at a time. And then obviously marijuana is making the headlines, whether it's legalized or medical marijuana or, you know, illegal all around. What are you seeing when it comes to, to marijuana seizures? Green leaf marijuana seizures uh, have dramatically decreased last year uh, in half, but really the most people that we are finding are, are using marijuana concentrates. They are higher quantity THC, uh, oftentimes in the vape cartridges. I don't know if you saw our uh, news release a few months ago. We had a very large seizure of 78,000 uh, vape cartridges. That The dangers in the cartridges or the edibles is you, you really have no idea what's in them. You're buying them uh, off the street, uh, not knowing what actually is in it, whether it's THC or some other product. And, you know, I forgot to ask you, and I don't know if I hit on this, but I was just going over um, your news release, and it looks like prescription pills can continue to be a problem as well. Yeah, a lot of our prescription pills we're finding are are actually counterfeit pills ordered over the dark web, shipped shipped to an address uh, for then uh, reselling uh, or and or a lot of our pills are coming from across the southwest border, uh, Mexican drug trafficking organizations uh, selling counterfeit pills. Uh, particularly, uh, it's called Mexioxy. They're a 30-milligram oxycodone look-alike pill that, that is becoming very common, uh, often laced with fentanyl as well, so extremely dangerous. And I guess the bottom line is drugs are continuing to circulate on our streets across the state. And, and any message for parents out there listening or kids? Tasha, uh, I, my message to all kids out there, all parents, is not one time. Um, because one time for many of these drugs uh, either will get you addicted or may kill you. 
um, I know that we all go through life and, and we have struggles and, and troubles. Uh, we need to make sure that we're educating our friends, family, particularly our kids, uh, that there is so much more to this life uh, that they won't get to see, they won't get to see through clear eyes, uh, and they might have a lifelong addiction uh, or uh, one dose can kill you. Thanks again to my guest, statewide gang and drug coordinator, Brian Marquardt. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast, F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911, F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn FAST, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. College baseball season gets underway this weekend, including the Golden Gophers opening the season with a tournament in the Phoenix area. Minnesota plays 14 games at the Vikings Stadium and also play an exhibition next week against the Twins in Fort Myers. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with legendary Gopher head coach John Anderson, the winningest baseball coach in Big Ten history. Anderson says they have an ambitious non-conference schedule. Got TCU coming to U.S. Bank Stadium and, of course, the Cambria College Classic. Got a new sponsor now for our tournament and will feature teams from the Big Ten and ACC in a challenge format. And all three teams from the ACC are nationally ranked right now, Duke, North Carolina, North Carolina State, and BS and Purdue and Iowa, and that should be a great event at U.S. Bank Stadium February 28, 29, and March 1. And then we got Utah from the Pac-12 coming in there and, and so, um, and then we go to Texas Tech this year, who's uh, uh, ranked in the top ten, and that uh, was in the Omaha last year for the College World Series. So, um, we got a lot on our plate here in terms of competition, but really looking forward to it. And you'll even be playing the pros next week, right? When you see the Twins. Yeah, that's uh, that's really a unique experience, and uh, I know the timing of it's probably not perfect this year, but I think it's hard to pass up. I think there's so many positives that come out of that game. Number one, our relationship and our partnership with the Twins is so strong. We get to celebrate that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Minnesotans and donors and, and special friends of our Gopher Athletics in Florida and get an opportunity to connect with them and, and celebrate those relationships. And, and, and then for our kids to have an opportunity to play uh, against professional players in, in an environment like that and what it does for your recruiting and the attention you, you wouldn't normally get uh, probably uh, by playing somebody else on social media and some of the other platforms uh, does a great deal for our program in terms of perception and branding and, and recruiting. Let's uh, talk a little bit um, about the team. Um, where are some areas as you guys try to get settled here once, as you mentioned, you're outdoors and you, you get some games going and the, the baseball's in the sky. Um, some areas that you think you may have to hang your hat on early to get to where you want to be in some places maybe you think uh, you know you might need to uh, let's get some improvement quick once we're outdoors. Well, uh, I think if you look at our team, we have 19 lettermen. Uh, we have 14 juniors. 
have 20 freshmen and sophomores. I mean, I think 19. We have one senior, Jordan Kozicki. So uh, we have a bunch of juniors. Um, but we have 19 lettermen. I think when you look at our team, you got to start with the pitching staff. That's really where the experience, uh, high talent level. Um, I've said this, and I don't think I'm too far off. We'll see. We start playing, but it might be the most talented pitching staff in terms of its depth and, and quality uh, that we've had in my career. Uh, and I know that's a big statement, uh, but I, I, I feel comfortable saying that. Um, you know, led by Max Meyer, who's a preseason All-American, potentially going to be a number one high draft choice somewhere in there uh, in the first round. Um, and, uh, you know, you got him, Sam Thorson, and Patrick Fredrickson, who was a freshman All-American, along with Max, who kind of had an off year, uh, went through uh, uh, some injuries last year, but I think he's back, and I think uh, pitching like he did as a freshman. So those will be our three starters uh, on, a, on a weekend. And, uh, you know, Josh Culliver is a junior who's uh, started last year in the league. And you start looking at our team from in that regard. And, uh, you know, Bubba Horton and Ryan Duffy are, are junior left-handed pitchers out of the bullpen. And J.P. Massey was a freshman last year. I think he has a chance to, to be a closer. He's a sophomore, and he's going to eventually be a pretty high draft uh, next year. So, um, and we've added some other pieces. And I, I've, I've been impressed with how well we've pitched inside. So, you look at the rest of the team. Um, you know, I think we have to tick up on offense. There's no question about that based on what we did last year. Uh, I think in college baseball today, the level of pitching, we're following professional baseball, Major League Baseball. The level of pitching across the board is so much different than it was 10 years ago. Um, everybody's got somebody. It seems like you're facing the guy on Sunday isn't your 85 to 87 mile an hour guy with average stuff. He's a 90 to 92 guy that's uh, going to be a draft, and, and everybody's got somebody or two or three guys in the bullpen. So, the batting averages have, have gone down and the strikeouts have gone up, and I think that's a testament to the level of pitching in the Division One college game today. Um, and so we got to find a way to be a better offensive team than we were a year ago. I think we're trending in the right direction. I've always said it takes 200 to 250 at-bats at Division One competition before you really start to figure out who you are as a hitter. You look at the 18 team, the Super Regional team, you know, Toby Hansen and Alex Boxwell and Mike Coffey and Luke Pedersen and, you know, Taryn Vavra. You know, they're all juniors and seniors, and they all uh, started to figure it out as they got into the last two years of their careers, and you know, we're in a similar trend right now. But uh, I'm encouraged. We did get a transfer from Northwestern, Jack Kelly, from St. Michael Albertville. I think he's going to hit in the middle of our lineup. He's a left-handed hitter. He can catch, play in the outfield, play some first base. I definitely think he's going to add some offense to our team there. And, uh, and I think we got asked, uh, we, we got a junior college first baseman, Ronnie Sweeney, and uh, uh, he came from uh, junior college in Iowa. Um, and I think uh, he's going to add some uh, uh, RBI and some power in the middle of our lineup. He's a left-handed hitter as well. He'll take over at first base for Cole McDevitt. And, uh, you know, Kozicki uh, got better at shortstop last year because he's played all over. He's been, looked good in practice. Zach Robbie's a sophomore at second base. And Jack Wassel at third base. He's a uh, third year um, uh, in the program, uh, redshirt uh, senior. Um, and uh, he's made some some strides here. So, I'm encouraged. I think our outfield has to sort itself out uh, out there still. Um, you know, we have a lot of choices there. We have some players. I'm not sure we're really sure how that's all going to settle out, but there are options there, right and left-handed hitters. I think that's the part of our team that we're most uncertain about who's going to lock down those positions, and we'll see. And it may be a, a situation where we platoon right and left-handed against certain certain pitchers we face. But I think the infield's pretty well set. Um, Chase Stanky and, and Riley Swenson and Jack Kelly behind the plate, and Sweeney at first, Robbie, Kazuki, Wassel. We're pretty set in the infield uh, right now, on paper anyway. 
Uh, but I think the outfield right now is a little uncertain. Um, you know, uh, so we'll see Andrew Himaleski, uh, who came over here from uh, the football team a few years ago, is starting to figure it out. And Easton Bertrand's a junior who's been inconsistent offensively, starting to figure it out. Sounds fun. And I know we'll talk uh, another time or two here as the spring rolls on, but best of luck here on the opening weekend. Okay, Mike. Thank you. That's Gopher baseball coach John Anderson with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.